Now we are live. To those on Facebook, welcome also to Working Knowledge, a labor and Jewish thought with David Speakelman. This is the third of four, of four sessions. Um, we are, it's always a pleasure to have David Speakelman teach here. And if you are joining us in Zoom, sources will be shared in chat. If you're joining in Facebook Live, sources will be shared in chat. As always, do feel free to ask questions in what in your respective chat function. They will be monitored and repeated. Um, one slight bit of housekeeping, if you are joining on Zoom, please mute yourself unless you're actively speaking. We'd like to avoid any audio feedback. And with that, hi, welcome. Good evening. Have a speak. Thanks, Kayla, and thank you all for joining again tonight. Um, the topic for today's class is what work matters and what work matters more. So let me start with something very simple. I think all of us, in some sense, have an understanding, whether we voice it explicitly or not, that there's some kinds of work which matter more than others. Now, maybe we're not happy with the fact that we make this distinction, maybe we are, but I think many of us have this sense that there is this, um, there is this kind of hierarchy of label labor, that some work matter more than the other. Um, if you have questions at the moment, then I would suggest putting them in the chat. Um, we're not going to entertain voice questions for now. Thanks. The question is, what does it matter? What does it matter why we have hierarchies of labor? How does it matter that we rank some work as being more important than others? Um, this actually has a huge impact on the way we see the world. It's not just about work. It's all about the way we understand the people around us and their own value. Um, for the very simple reason that the work that we do is very, very often associated with the value of the human beings that are doing it. That is to say, we judge people not simply by who they are, but the kinds of things they do. If a person does a job that we deem important, we, dread, we judge that person to be important as well. It also has an impact <clears throat> on um, how we see work as being visible or invisible. There's some kinds of work which we kind of don't notice at all because we don't deem it to be very important. We don't take the time to highlight it. Um, and then lastly, the way we rank work matters because it affects how we think about people who are idle and whether it's acceptable to be idle or not. So what I wanna talk about in this class is the kinds of hierarchies of work that we have, the kinds of hierarchies of work that we see in Jewish sources and some solutions that we see within the Jewish tradition for what to do when people's work is being undervalued because of a system that treats the things that they do for a living as being less important. Um, I wanna say at the outset that there's one thing I'm not gonna be doing in this class. I'm not gonna be talking about the ranking of Torah as a kind of, as, a, as a, an occupation versus other kinds of work. I think that's a kind of separate discussion. In this class, we really just wanna talk about um, kind of non-Torah occupations and stay within that realm. Now, the way that we rank work changes a lot depending on the culture we're in. Sometimes we rank work depending on um, intelligence, right? Jobs that require a PhD are ranked more highly than jobs that require just a high school education. Sometimes we do it like that. Sometimes we rank jobs based on creativity. Jobs, you know, um, art, um, programming sometimes is ranked more highly than say uh, a job where you just kind of like perform the same task over and over again for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Sometimes we judge work as being more important because we think it's more valuable. We think that it contributes to society in a serious way. Um, sometimes, whether we admit it or not, we value work more highly because it's better paid. You say, oh, that person's making several hundred thousand dollars a year. The thing that they do must be important as based on that. And lastly, maybe one of the most enduring ways that we um, rank work is based on gender. 
where there is a consistent problem of the work that is being done by women, especially work that is being done inside the household in um, some kinds of societies, is judged as being inferior or is actually being not worth of consideration as work at all. So I want, want to kind of go through these different hierarchies, and you will see in the sources that we look through different uh, ways that each of these kinds of hierarchies shows up. So let me first kind of present um, the major hierarchy of work that is quite old, um, that is probably familiar to you in some sense, even if you haven't seen this text before, and it's had a huge impact on the world. Aristotle, in his writing, when he writes about different kinds of work, basically says there's four kinds of labor, and he ranks them in order of importance. On the top, there's a thing called theoria. Theoria is contemplation, study, theorizing. That's what philosophers do. That's the best kind of work. It's also, as you can probably tell, the one that requires the least muscle work. It's kind of entirely in your head. A little bit below that is what he calls praxis. This is acting, doing, practicing. This is work that is producing virtues. This is often the job of leaders. So leaders aren't as great as philosophers, but they're still pretty high up there. A little bit below that is what he calls techne. That's basically all the craftspeople, right? They involve some amount of skill in their work, but it's not kind of virtuous, at least as he conceives of it. And then below that are the activities that Aristotle associates with slaves. That is preparing food and drink. It just relies on experience. It doesn't require any kind of higher knowledge whatsoever. Um, this hierarchy of work is deeply embedded in our culture. Um, it has impact. It has impacted uh, the way we see work, even to and even until today. It's the reason why you know we still you know value people who spend lots of time thinking. We often forget people who are uh, in the food production, food preparation business. For a long time, it was a reason that um, you know even in the West we devalued engineers, we devalued doctors because their work was kind of considered too practical. It was too much not in your head, too much involving you know the messiness of the real world to be taken seriously. And importantly, it's also the reason that there's some kinds of history which are untold. History that involves discussions of technology are often untold because they're really the stories of people who work with their hands. So we kind of stick with like, you know, the stories of philosophy, we care a little bit less about the stories of engineers. So this is um, a story that shows up in lots of different places. I wanna show you one, uh, one uh, um, Hellenistic text which displays this idea and then kind of gets to Jewish text. This is from Seneca. So Seneca is living a little bit after Aristotle. Seneca is living in the first century CE. Seneca writes in one of his letters, Pesidonius asserts that the arts fall into four classes. First, the vulgar and degrading, then those concerned with entertainment, those concerned with education of the youth, and finally, the liberal arts. The vulgar, which depend on manual labor, are staffed by workmen and are concerned with satisfying everyday needs. They have not even a pretense of beauty or honor. The entertainment arts are those which are focused on pleasing the eye and ear. You might assign to this category the stage technicians who construct scaffolding that rises by itself or floors that rise silently upwards and other surprising novelties such as objects that seem whole but fall apart, that seem fragmentary but join together of their own accord, or that stand erect and then gradually collapse. And third, he says, the arts concerned with the education of the youth which have some similarity to the liberal arts are those that the Greeks call the cycle of studies. But we, however, call them liberal arts. Those arts are the liberal arts. And in fact, to speak more accurately, the free arts whose concern is excellent of mind and character, right? So at the bottom, the worst kinds of arts, vulgar, degrading, manual labor, work that is kind of aesthetically ugly, like people look ugly. They're kind of like dirty when they're doing the work that actually matters to Seneca. A little bit above that is entertainment. It's manual work, but it's kind of beautiful, or it's in the service of beauty. 
then there's education. And then at the top, there's kind of, um, there's mind and character book. So these are very influential. Um, you see this as well in, uh, in some Jewish sources. There is a kind of similar, not exactly identical, but a similar kind of structure um, for ranking work um, in a number of Jewish sources. So the first one I wanna show you is from Bavli and Yevamot. Rabbi Lezer says, no occupation is lowlier than working the land. The worst thing you can do is be a farmer. As it says, they, people, it just says Vayardu, right? The people in other professions shall come down. That is like literally they descend. They descend to be, to be in the level of farmers and they stand upon the land. Rabbi Elazar saw that he had plowed, that he saw land that had been plowed across its width. And he says, even if they plow your length, he's speaking to the land here, doing business is more valuable than working you. It's quite an insult, right? It's, <laughs> it's better to be doing business than to be spending any time preparing you land. Rav entered a field and said something similar. He saw sheaves waving and he said, you can wave if you want, but doing business is more valuable than working you. And then Rava said, someone with a hundred zuzim in a business can eat meat and wine all day, but a hundred zuzim in a field yields only salt and vegetables. Moreover, it causes him to lie on the ground and instigate arguments. So for a, a number of reasons, it's better to be in business than it is to be a farmer. This again kind of goes to something which we talked about in the first class about how the rabbis kind of conceive of themselves as craftspeople more than they do as being um, agriculturalists. But you see here, they're actually looking down on agricultural work, right? It's less valuable. It's literally less valuable, meaning like you make less money doing it. Um, your time is less well spent doing it. You live a worse life because you do it. You don't eat as well because of it. And that seems to matter to the rabbis. It matters to them that this kind of work is not as efficient in kind of producing the good things in life. Um, and importantly, this kind of tells you something about how they're thinking about work itself, right? If you say agriculture is worse, crafts work is better, it's because you're saying work's ultimately about creating value. It's a means to an end. And because work's a means to an end, we care about the best means, right? The, th the things they're going to get to the end as fast as possible. And so because of that, um, doing business is the best thing you can do. Other things are worse than that. Um, but this extends also to non-agricultural work. Okay, so let's you know stipulate that the worst thing you can be is a farmer. But what comes above that? What's what's beyond that? Beyond that is the rabbi saying that actually even within non-agricultural work, there's further divisions. So in Bavli and Kiddushin, it says Tanurabanan, Kol Shasakav Im Hanashim Sorura. Anybody whose business dealings are with women has bad character. Full stop. Now just kind of I, I want to kind of leave aside whether you think that is correct or incorrect. I want to just treat this for a moment as the rabbi is expressing that work should be judged based on its kind of virtues, the kinds of person that it makes you into. So the, this is the rabbi saying that there's kinds of work which kind of put you in situations which are less than appropriate or less than good. This is, this is the way the rabbis are thinking about this. So some kinds of work kind of lead you into um, compromising situations as the rabbis understand it. And so they give some examples of this. They say, kagon, hatsorfim, vasarikim, vahanikorod, vaharochlim, vahagardim, vasaparim, vakovsim, vagravaban, vahaborski. So smiths, people who comb flax, chiselers, um, people who uh, peddle things, weavers, barbers, launderers, bloodletters, bathhouse attendants, tanners, all these professions involve men being too much in contact with women, the rabbis think that's a problem, and therefore these professions categorically are worse than other kinds of professions. 
And not just that, this has an impact on their lives. So let's say one of these people um, is in line to be a future king or to be a future Kohen Gadol. Being in, these lines, being in this line of work actually excludes them from those, right? It says, in lo Kohen Gadol. You literally cannot be um, a leader of the Jewish people, either ritually or politically, if you had one of these jobs prior, because it is corrupting in some way. It's not, it's not because they're disqualified, but because the occupations themselves are somewhat demeaning. Okay. So already we have another sense that there is, even within non-agricultural work, ways in which some work is kind of less virtuous or produces people who are less virtuous, and therefore it should be avoided if at all possible. But okay, so then what kind of work should you do? Daraj Bar Kapara, and this, this last sentence shows up in more than one place in the Talmud. Barakapara says, A person should always teach their kid work that is kind of clean and simple or easy. What's an example of this? Mahi, I'm a Rabbi Yehuda. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot the last three words here. Um, but he says, fine stitching. Fine stitching is the kind of work they should do. Embroidery, something along those lines. Kind of work that is kind of quiet, work that I think, as I understand it, um, is, doesn't involve a lot of exposure to kind of clients. It's work that you kind of do quietly by yourself. That is the best kind of work. It's relatively simple work to do. So the rabbis understand that, again, here, there is this sense of work as being a means to an end. But because it's a means to an end, you're not just trying to maximize profit. You're also trying to maximize profit while kind of preserving your character at the same time. These seem to be the two things that you're trying to do. Okay. So we've established there's a hierarchy of agricultural work beneath other kinds of work. And there is also, um, and there's also even within um, artisanal work, there is better and worse kinds of work within that category. Um, I see in the comments, right, some, some people saying, right, uh, Yitzchak was a farmer, Haman was a barber, right? So there is, there, this is not, um, I would say like with these sources, it is difficult to talk about all periods of Jewish history. One thing that's clear here is the rabbis are talking about a specific kind of economy. They're responding to that kind of economy, right? So Yitzchak's task as a, as a barber looks a little bit different. Now, uh, John, you're asking about what about what about women? We believe missionists are generally weavers. Okay, we're about to get to women, which I think is um, the most interesting and in some ways the most problematic uh, example of this um, period. So this is all so far speaking pretty explicitly within work that in their rabbi's time is associated with men. In fact, we know that because they're talking about, we're worried about men encountering women in their occupations. But there's also an understanding of women's work as well. And understanding specifically that, um, that women, married women, have responsibilities to work within the context of marriage. And there's an interesting discussion in the Mishnah about what that obligation looks like. And more importantly, whether that's kind of an essential part of being married, that you have to do those jobs, or whether you can actually pass it off to other people if you have the means to do so. This is in source number five. Mishnah Ketuvot says, these are the kind of the, um, the, the actions, these are the kinds of works that a woman must perform for her husband. Right, so has to grind flour, she has to bake, do laundry, cook, nurse a child, make the bed for him, and spin thread. Now, what if she has means? What if she enters the marriage with some amount of money and she's able to kind of basically contract that work out? So it says, um, If she enters the marriage bringing one maidservant with her, 
Then she is excluded from grinding, from baking, and also from laundry. Okay, what if she brings more people into the marriage? Stein, she brings two maidservants into the marriage. Okay, doesn't have to cook anymore. She actually doesn't have to nurse anymore. Shlosh, what if she brings three maidservants into the marriage? Then she doesn't have to make bed, and she doesn't even have to spin thread. What if she brings four people into the marriage? Then she can kind of just sit in a chair. She doesn't have to do anything. So in this, in this part of the Mishnah, the rabbis say, well, she has to do this work. This is kind of an understanding of what her responsibility is within the context of the marriage. It doesn't give her a choice in it, but she can kind of pass it off onto other people if she has the means to do so. But importantly, Rabbi Eliezer comes along and says, ah, it actually doesn't work like that at all. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, even if she brings a hundred maidservants into this marriage, then she must still spin thread. She still has to do something. She can never be entirely excluded from this kind of work. Why? Because idleness leads to licentiousness. That we're worried that actually just being idle will corrupt her character. And then Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel kind of comes along and says something similar. Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, Omer, af If a person, if, if a husband actually makes a vow that his wife does not have to do any work, um, because in the mission's understanding, a husband is allowed to make vows for his wife along these lines. If he says that she doesn't have to do any work, it actually ends the marriage. She, he has to um, give her a ketuba and the marriage is ended. Because idleness brings about literally idiocy of some kind, right? And like it makes her feeble-minded in some way. The list of things that I find problematic about this Mishnah is quite long. Um, I want to start with the fact that nowhere in this Mishnah is there any suggestion that she could be doing something else with her time, right? It's like, oh, well, if she's not doing this work, then what is she going to be doing? Learning Torah? Um, so first of all, there is that. There is like nowhere a sense that um, uh, that reducing your work allows you to pursue the kind of mental activities, the kind of spiritual or intellectual activities that um, rabbis speak all the time about wanting to pursue and think about intention with the work that they have to do. That is not being considered whatsoever. Beyond that, I think what, what also I find problematic here is that Rabbi Eliezer says, basically it is, it is problematic for women to be idle at all, that it's important for, work, for them to be doing work, even if they have the means to not do that work, because as a mode of living, um, it's a way of preserving character. So the work there um, is a way to kind of preserve a certain character, to prevent a kind of corruption of this, this person. Um, and so the work, has, the work has to be done no matter what. Now, on the, on the face of it, it seems like between these two, um, even if you, even if you uh, say that there is something reasonable about you know, women going into the marriage with this specific list of responsibilities, which obviously we can contest as well, I think we would want to say, well, certainly we wouldn't follow Rabbi Eliezer. Certainly we wouldn't say that a woman has to do work no matter what, because it's an important part of being a wife. The problem is that actually Rabbi Lezer's position in a certain way wins out. Wins out not just in, in the times of the Mishnah, but wins out um, in American society as well. And here I wanna just give you an example of this. 
uh, from a, a really famous work um, uh, of technological history uh, by Ruth Cohen from the 80s. Ruth Cohen wrote a book called More Work for Mother. And here she's kind of reflecting on the fact that, um, well, she, you know, it's not that women are bringing more maidservants into their marriages, um, into their families, because the number of, you know, the number of people that Americans employ in their households actually goes down quite a bit. But in the 20th century, the number of kind of uh, time-saving appliances that women have access to goes up considerably, right? You have dishwasher, you have microwaves, you have, you have ovens, you have all this stuff which is supposed to save time. What Ruth Cohen points out is that that's true. All this stuff exists, it's all available. And yet, if you actually look at the amount of time that women have to do work, it's, they, it's basically the same. Basically women end up doing the same amount of work. What she says, source number six, she says the, the egg beater, which was invented and marketed during the middle decades of the century, may have eased the burden of this work somewhat, of women's work. But unfortunately, the popularity of the beater was accompanied by the popularity of angel food cakes, in which eggs are the only leavening and yolks and whites are beaten separately, thus doubling the work. In short, whether it was bread or cakes that she was routinely preparing, the 19th century housewife whose household had converted from the product of a local grist mill to the product of a far off flour factory would have found for a variety of reasons that she was spending considerably more time working with that flour than her grandmother had and her husband's considerably less than his grandfather. The advent of industrialized flour brought with it a profound shift in the responsibilities and time allocations of the two sexes vis-a-vis -vis their work in their own homes. Men's share in domestic activity began to disappear, but women's share increased. Thus, housework was becoming truly women's work and not an obligation shared by both sexes. So what I want you to see here is like, there's a choice being made here. It was not necessary that the amount of work that women were doing in the household had to stay the same. It is instead a reflection of a society that thinks that this is appropriate, that it is actually good for women to continue doing the same amount of work, that it is not good for the amount of work to be reduced. And I think this is the, the kind of, um, one of the implications of ranking work that has the most important effect on society. Because sometimes if we think that it's important for a person to do work, then even as society pro progresses, we will make sure that that work, you know, that person still has work to do no matter what. Maybe the work changes, but the idea that that work will be reduced, that you should be spending your time on something else instead, never enters the picture. John, you're asking is the assumption that idleness is bad for men too, but men always manage to be busy. I think it's that there is for men an alternative, right? It's not just either you're working or you're idle, but that there's other kinds of um, honest and important pursuits beyond simply, um, beyond simply kind of um, what for the rabbis would be meaningless work, work that is just a means to an end. Um, that option is not being presented in the Mishnah as being, um, as being an option for women. Okay, so you have all these examples of ways in which hard workers of work are presented. Now, um, what happens when you create hard workers of work like this? Well, one thing we already saw is that it means that some people get stuck with doing work no matter what. They get stuck with doing work because it's deemed important for them to do work even if the work changes. Um, but a second piece of it is that the work itself ends up getting taken less seriously. And for this, I want to show you, um, I love teaching with pictures. I haven't had a chance to teach with pictures so far in this course. Um, I want to show you a series of pictures, which I think helps illustrate this really nicely. Um, you know, when you look at the history of technology, um, one of the ways that we have a sense of what machines looked like in the past 
is looking at Bibles. And one of the way we know one, one of the ways that we know what ancient boats look like is by looking at pictures of uh, Noah's Ark, because you know all kinds of Bibles, Jewish Bibles, Christian Bibles, also a lot of Haggadot will illustrate in some place the Teva. And so we get a sense like, oh, this is what this is what they thought um, boats looked like back then. Because of this, because we have so many of these pictures, we get a sense not just of what boats looked like at one point in time, but we get a sense of a kind of development of the building process. And we get a sense of how boat building becomes more and more and more complicated over time. And one of the interesting things we see is that there is a kind of shift in the way that boats are built that ends up having an impact also on the way that the people building those boats are depicted. Let me show you what I mean. So let me start with the, the first picture. In the 13th century, this is a Bible. Um, this is a Christian book. Uh, you have Jesus on the right, Noah's on the left. He's building the ark all by himself. You actually don't see the ark in this picture at all. But what's important, what I want you to take away from this, is that it's just Noah doing it. No one else is helping him. Um, a little bit later, in the St. Omer Psalter, in the 14th century, you have Noah. Now he has a few, pe few people helping him. It's a little bit hard to see. Noah's the guy on the ark. He's the guy in blue. There's a few people around him. Um, and I want, what I want you to notice is um, he is around the same size as all those other people. And he is one among many workers. You might say that he's the foreman. That is to say, he is the lead worker, but he is still a worker. He has the same kind of job as the other workers do, even if part of his job is also to direct other people to do their work. Um, now, part of the reason that boats are built in this way at this time is that building a boat in the 14th century is not very complicated. The way you do it, basically, is you build the outside shell of the boat. You figure out what you, what the, you, what you want the exterior to look like. And then based on the exterior, you kind of insert decks um, and you insert planks and you insert a mast and all that, but it kind of, it goes from the outside in. Now, this is, uh, this is nice in some, in some ways, but it doesn't allow for as much control over the interior structure of the boat. Um, and so if you're kind of trying to streamline it, it's not as useful. A better way of building boats is to build them from the inside out. You start with the, the internal structure, what you want the boat to look like on the inside, and then you kind of build the outside around that interior structure. Um, we have, even in the 14th century, here's a Jewish example in the Sarajevo Haggadah, another example where you have already a little bit of a shift in the way that Noah is depicted, right? So Noah here, you can probably tell is on the right. He's the guy in red, he's pointing. Notice, notice that in this picture, he's not actually doing the work himself. It's other people who is doing the work for him. Noah is kind of directing the show, but they're still around the same size. But after this, there's kind of a more of a major shift. And here you start really seeing something changing. Raphael, um, in his 16th century depiction of building the ark, you see, um, is you see that Noah is the only one in the picture who's wearing clothes. Um, and you see that the other people are kind of, uh, are depicted in a way that suggests there is a kind of status difference between them, right? They're unclothed. You don't even see all of their faces. Noah is there just kind of directing the work, telling people what to do. The kind of end of the sequence um, is in the 17th century. Melchior Kusels, let me actually um, make this a little bigger so you can see it. You have a depiction here of Noah where Noah's on the bottom right. He's kind of like, you know, convening with God in some way. On the left, you see all these tiny little people working around this very complicated structure of a boat. 
you can barely see their faces. And on the ground beneath them, you see this kind of diagram of a vote. Um, so in the space of a few centuries, you go from a task where everyone's basically doing the same kind of work and they're all basically on the same level to a task that is both more complicated and one where the labor is vastly bifurcated, where one person or a few people who are kind of, um, you know, we can call designers or engineers uh, who kind of have the creative work or the kind of um, architectural work are, are treated with more respect. And then everyone else, all the people who are executing their plan are treated um, as more lowly. And at least one of these depictions not even given the courtesy uh, of clothes. So one thing that happens when you take work less seriously is you end up demeaning the people who conduct that work. You end up in a situation where the people who are, who are kind of executing a plan are treated as kind of like being an afterthought. Like, oh yeah, of course someone's gonna do that. But the important work, the really important work was being done by the person who had the idea in their head for how to execute it in the first place. But I wanna take it a step further. It's not just that the work is demeaned. It's not just that the work is treated as lowly. It is also that the work is often made invisible. So in this picture, in source number 11, the people building the boat are not yet invisible. You can see them, you can't see their faces, but you can see that some, be, some people are kind of helping out trying to build this boat. But this changes. Um, and I think the most powerful example of this, an example which is kind of so uh, pervasive in society today that we don't even think about it, um, has to do with buttons. Um, think about the buttons in your life for a second. Think about what uh, buttons do, buttons or switches, any kind of, um, any kind of uh, simple device that, that kind of moves an electrical current. Um, think about why buttons exist. Buttons exist um, in a basic sense to hide labor, to hide work. Buttons exist because um, companies, um, people um, want a, to live in a world in which much of the work that they are doing or that they are directing is hidden from them. Now, Sometimes that work is being done by people. Sometimes that work is being done by machines or by wires, right? Like when you flip a switch in your house and the switch connects a circuit, which then uh, brings electricity in from a power plant far away. Like a lot of that work is being done by machines, by infrastructure that's been set up in advance. And some of that work is being done by human beings. But one of the important things that buttons do is because the work is hidden, you actually can't tell anymore. You can't tell anymore whether it's a human being or a machine on the other end of the thing. And so there's a way in which society, when it gets to a certain point of bifurcation between the work being done by some people and the work being done by the majority, when it gets to a certain point, we also have mechanisms that allow us to actually hide from ourselves the work that most people are doing for us. Um, and when we hide that work, we also further degrade it. And we literally don't recognize that that is work at all, that is work being done by humans at all. I wanna just give you like a small example of this. Um, many of you probably use Facebook or other kinds of social media. When you scroll through Facebook, um, you know, the people who put together that site, the engineers are being compensated extremely well, right? If you're at Facebook, your starting salary might be somewhere around like $250,000 a year, very high. But Facebook isn't just being run by engineers. Whenever you look at a Facebook feed, you're seeing a feed that has been scrubbed of violent imagery, of sexual imagery, of a pornographic imagery, of, of, um, of, uh, of all kinds of content that um, you would find shocking or harmful or scary. 
And that work is being done by literally an army of people who are employed by Facebook through contractors um, to basically moderate the site. That work is no less necessary, is no less important, but those people are compensated literally around a tenth the amount. Those are kind of the people in the, in the category of, of workers who like have to fight to get bathroom breaks, fight just to be able to, you know, have enough time out of their day to, to, to be able to use the bathroom. There's a way in which the work is bifurcated and because those workers are less visible, it's much harder for us, I'm sorry, I should say it's much easier for us to ignore them and to ignore the kinds of things that they do. Um, this is a longstanding problem. So given that this is the case, given that hierarchies of labor can cause these major, major problems in the way that we value people, whether we even are aware that people are doing work at all, how do we solve this? How do you get out of this problem? Because like, it's not a problem that goes away. And, and it's, it's a problem that's very, very well entrenched in society. Um, I want to suggest four possible solutions. And I think they're useful in different contexts. Not all, you know, they're not always applicable, but I think um, each of them has its own place. The first is to recognize work as not just being a means to an end, but also at some points in time as connecting people to God and as being in some ways a kind of, um, a kind of product or an emanation um, of God, God's self. Um, a couple of classes ago, we talked about how this source about uh, how God made the first tongs seems to suggest that God is enabling all human work, that God is responsible for craftsmanship and that God kind of takes the first step so that human beings can then do other, can do their own craft work later on. Well, if you take that idea a little bit further, you can suggest whenever human beings are doing work, they are in some sense carrying out something divine. Um, I want to show you a text that seems to suggest that really, uh, really impressively. The text we skipped a little bit earlier. Actually, before, before I show you the text, I just want to, want to set it up because it's um, really kind of mind-blowing text. Um, in the 20th century, in the 21st century, the golem has become an extremely popular, um, I don't even know what to call it, uh, uh, um, not quite a metaphor, uh, but a symbol. It's used in all kinds of context. The way that the golem is used in the last 100 years bears shockingly little resemblance to the way that the golem is originally conceived um, in the Middle Ages, which seems to be the time when the original golem idea comes about. What is the golem originally? The Hasidic Ashkenaz, living in France, living in Germany um, in, the 13th, in the 12th and 13th centuries, have this very powerful idea that human work and divine work are kind of similar. And that one of the things that God gives human beings is the ability to emulate God. And what's the way that you can most dramatically emulate God? It's by making more people, by actually literally making more people. And the Hasidic Ashkenaz, at least in some of their texts, suggests, yep, people can do that. Human beings totally have the capacity to do the thing that was kind of like the most impressive thing that, that God did in the world to make human beings. Human beings can actually make more human beings. Now, we don't know if they mean this literally or if they mean this as a kind of spiritual exercise, but they certainly describe in a number of texts the ways that it's possible to make a golem. And by making a golem, they're saying, um, making a replica of a human being. Um, and we know that because the word golem, when the word golem originally appears, doesn't refer to some kind of like animated stone sculpture. It refers to human beings. A golem in the Talmud is just a human being that has not had God's spirit entered into its body yet. 
that's what a golem is originally. And so in Chas the Hasidic Ashkenaz basically say humans can do that too. They recognize though, that this power they have is, is so incredible that actually is dangerous. And here I wanna show you this text, which suggests just how dangerous it is. One of the most important things to note about early golems is that they always get destroyed as soon as they're made. And in this particular story, the golem basically destroys itself. It's made, and as soon as it comes into existence, it's made by a father and son. As soon as it comes into existence, it begs the father and son, please destroy me. I do not want to exist. Why don't I want to exist? Because my existence in the world will make people lose respect for God. This is um, from a manuscript. Um, I have this, I didn't just kind of, you know, find this myself. This is uh, Gershom Sholem um, <clears throat> writes about this text. This is my translation, but it's <laughs> Sholem who came up with it, who found it. This is from early 13th century. So this is the golem speaking. The golem is made, and this is what the golem says. The golem says, let me tell you why I want to be destroyed. Imagine a builder. Great. The golem is introducing a mashal. A builder built many houses, courts, and cities, but nobody could compete with his craft in either knowledge or skill until two men convinced him. Two men say, like, please teach us how to do what you do. So the builder taught them the secret of his craft until they knew how to do everything correctly. Once they had mastered the craft and understood its secret and its character, they began to critique him and then broke from his company and became builders like him, except that what he did for a dinar, they would do for half that amount. That's like kind of a classic business story, right? He trains them, they split from him, and then they undercut his entire business. When people noticed this, everyone stopped honoring the artisan and came to them instead honoring them and contracting with them for any construction they required. Similarly, God made you in God's image and appearance and form. But now that you are creating a man as God did, people will say there is no God in the world but these two. So you have to destroy me. And they, they do destroy this golem. You have to destroy me because actually the thing that you did is literally what God did. It's the same thing that God did. And so if you do it instead, people will lose respect for God. Now, whether the people in Ashkenaz in the 13th century are actually able to make golems or not, I want to leave to the side. What's important here is this sense the human power is incredible. The humans have the ability to do, um, to do godlike things. And I think one way of starting to level a playing field between, um, between different kinds of work is to recognize that all human labor, not just creating golems, but all human labor is in some sense powerful at this level. There is something godly about it. And because it's godly, it deserves respect. It's not the kind of thing that an animal could do. It is, in some sense, a kind of piece of the divine. And because it's a piece of the divine, it needs to be respected. Okay, that's a piece of it. The second shift kind of takes place. I don't know that we can get benefit for this, but it takes place because um, in the last couple hundred years, there has been a, a little bit of a shift um, in the way that we value practical versus theoretical work. Aristotle and Seneca, the text that I showed you at the very beginning, which kind of rate philosophy at the top and then kind of going down less, you know, more and more practical goes lower and lower and lower. That way of thinking about work is really dominant until around the 15th, the 16th century. Um, and from that point, there is a shift. There's an interest in mechanics. There's an interest in engineering as not just, you know, something that workers do, we don't really care about, but it's something, that, something that's worth, 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 worthy of serious study. And because it's worth seri worthy of serious study, 
the way that people start to value it changes as well. We start to see this in the early modern period in some Jewish sources too, which start to see um, would start to see uh, um, kind of uh, engineering work as having real value as well. One of the first sources where this is really well explained is um, in a really, really fascinating person who is you know, worth the of study in and of itself, if you haven't heard of him, named Yashar of Kandia. Also, Yosef Shlomo Delmedico, that's his actual name, who lives in, who dies in 1655. He is a student of Galileo. He's like a direct pupil of Galileo. Um, you know, he studies with him in Padua. Um, he, it's possible he invented the thermometer. We don't really know. It's possible. He talks about thermometers a lot, and it's around the time when thermometers are invented. <clears throat> Joseph Shlomo Delmedigo says, I esteem those who invent something beneficial for society at large, the alchemists who transmit metals and demonstrate publicly the truth of their art, the mineralogists, agronomists, engineers of water supply. Their work is useful to many in times of peace and war, and it's they who are the perfect scholars, not the philosophers who write only write words. This also applies to mathematics, the functional aspects of which deserve much greater praise than the purely theoretical. So sometimes there's a shift in the way that work is ranked just because the way society itself um, values work changes. And so we kind of come along for the ride. This is not that different from what I described in the previous class about the way that sometimes the way that we see Shabbat changes, not because of anything happened to our conception of Shabbat, but because Shabbat as a kind of reflection of work as a kind of opposite of work changes because the nature of work changes. There's something similar happening there. Um, Ozzy, your question, is that work considered lowly by the Talmud considered to be divine as well? Um, I think it's a good question. I don't have a great answer for you. Um, I don't know that the, this concept of work is as fully developed in the Talmud, but I think it's a good question. And um, I'm sure someone else has a better answer. Let me see if I can come up with an answer for you for your next class. Um, a third way of kind of equalizing work is to see all work as part of the important task of building the state of Israel. And this is, I should say, this is not just true for Israel. I think for one of the ways that work gets equalized in many societies is this part of nationalist projects. Here, I wanted to show you a, a short text by Rav Tzvi Yisrael Tal. Um, this is from a book of his called Nosei Al-Mutav. Rav Tzvi Yisrael Tal is a student of Tzvi Yehuda Kuk. Um, and so he writes, the, dest the, the, the destined purpose of the Jewish people as an agricultural nation is puzzling, since ordinarily agricultural peoples are primitive and underdeveloped, while nations which engage in industry and trade are the ones who have developed and, progress and, and progressive agriculture. But in the life of the Israelite nation, the opposite process is taking place. Its talents and the qualities of its soul find the realization and come to completion specifically in the way of life, which is tilling the soil as a central founding element. So one of the Zionist project actually does something um, to the way that we normally conceive of work. Now, noticeably, Rav Tao doesn't actually dispute the hierarchy. He says like, yeah, 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 I agree with the Talmud. Agricultural work is supposed to be the worst. That's, that's still true. But in this particular moment, as part of the project of building up the state of Israel, we're going to kind of suspend that and actually say, that thing, agricultural work, is now elevated. So, you know, we can kind of, I mean, there's like, um, there's like positive elements of this, there's negative elements of this. It's positive in that it is promoting work that has traditionally been demeaned. On the other hand, it doesn't actually do anything to destroy the hierarchy itself. It still preserves the hierarchy. It just says it's suspended for this moment. 
So, so far we've thought about, you know, three different ways of getting rid of these hierarchies of work, right? One way is to suggest that they're all connected to God in some way. Another way is to suggest that they, you revalue work itself because society itself, outside society is revaluing work. And the third is as part of a nationalist project. Um, right, Ozzy, I think what you were saying about what, what it means for non-Jews to work in Israel is another kind of derivative of what he's saying here, right? It's not anybody doing agricultural work that matters. It's specifically Jewish people doing work that matters in this particular moment. The last way that I wanna show you and the way um, that I think is most, most um, powerful in kind of um, demolishing hierarchies of work has to do with a reconceptualization of the best kind of work itself. And here I wanna kind of tell you about a little, a little bit of a, let's say revolution that took place in the last decade or so in the field of the history, history of technology. Now, if you've ever seen any kind of history of technology, you know, scholarly pop history, it's usually written like this. How would the bicycle change the world? How Coca-Cola changed the world? How the refrigerator changed the world? Meaning it's always, here's a new technology, it comes in, boom, something amazing happens. And the reason that these stories are written like this is because that's how the history has been done traditionally. That's how scholars of technology have often done their work. They take a new technology, they look at the first few, year, few years of its development and say, oh, it caused this revolution in some way. There's a new uh, kind of current um, in the history of technology, which says this is actually exactly the wrong way to go about looking at technology. Because in fact, most technologies don't work like that. It's not like a new thing comes along, let's look at the consequences. Most technologies have extremely long lives. They're not new. They get used and adapted and changed in various ways. And more importantly, a lot of the really important work that is done in technology has nothing to do with innovation at all. Instead, it has to do with maintenance. And that word maintenance is really the key word here. The idea that the focus of our studies should not be chasing the thing that is newest, chasing the thing that's gonna change the world, like looking at like the big new innovation that's gonna like revolutionize the internet, revolution is, you know, you know our, our computer is our society. Forget about that. Don't look for the new, look for maintenance. Look for the people who actually take the time to make sure that like bridges aren't falling down, to make sure that our highways are in good shape, to make sure that our cars aren't falling apart, right? That is actually the key work of life. And importantly, I think that work elevates a lot of the work that Ruth Cohen in writing about kind of domestic labor, that work gets hidden, right? That's a lot of maintenance work as well, right? Like there's nothing innovative about raising a child, at least, let, you know, there is some innovation in children, but, um, you know, it's a lot of repetitive work. It's a lot of like putting food on the table over and over and over again, doing lots of dishes, doing lots of laundry, things like that. This is saying, yeah, that's most work. Most work looks like that. Most work is not Eureka, I came up with something new. And so there is now a kind of shift towards saying maintenance needs to be the key thing. I want to suggest that within Jewish sources, this idea of maintenance, this idea of maintenance being like a kind of key element of work has always been there. And I think it's expressed most powerfully in Mishnavot, in a couple of Mishnavot, which probably you've seen before. Um, this is from the first parak of Pirkei Avot. Shimon HaTzadik haya mishyare kinesakadola, hu haya omer ashoshat varim ha'olam amid al-Torah v'al-Avadah v'al-Gmil chasadim. And so Shimon HaTzadik says the world stands on three things, on Torah, 
on service and on acts of loving kindness, piety, however you want to translate the Chesedim. Then at the end of that same parak, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel the world also stands on three things, but they're different things. Right, on judgment, on truth, and on peace. Importantly here, there is a sense that the world stands not on kind of people chasing the newest thing. The world stands on the kind of continuation of certain principles, certain activities that happen day in and day out. And as long as those things happen, society continues to function. But this notion of the world as kind of like requiring constant work, I find very powerful as a notion of maintenance, as a notion that the world requires constant maintenance, that that maintenance work um, is actually key to the world's continued existence. Um, there's something very equalizing about that. Um, and I think that as we think about how work is valued, it's useful to think about this, think about what are the people in our lives, who are the people in our lives without whom our world could not stand, without whom we wouldn't be able to live our normal lives. Those people deserve more recognition, and I think those people deserve to be lift up, lifted up. And I think as soon as we focus on those people, we will find that most people are actually in that category. Most people are in the category of the people whose work needs to continue to exist, needs to continue um, unless, um, otherwise our worlds fall apart. Most people are in that category. So our records of labor are very, very hard to eliminate, but I think there are a good number of tools um, in our tool, but especially the tool of maintenance and focusing on the value of maintenance um, that allow us to subvert them and create a more equal playing field. So let me stop there and ask if there's any questions. Um, I believe, who was it? I believe uh, Mark Fultz, you had a hand up at some point during class. You still, uh, is that question still in your mind? Mm -hmm. uh, Ozzy? Yeah, there's a concept of uh, work as a, as a means to an end as, as opposed to an end in, in and of itself. Um, can you comment on that maybe? I mean, I'm, you know, not, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. So is work, is, I mean, is, if work's to have meaning, is, does that mean that work is a means to an end or is it an end in and of itself? I mean, I'm not sure what I'm asking, but maybe you can understand what I'm asking. Yeah, I think so. Certainly we looked at some examples of texts which seem to assume that work is a means to an end. They basically think about it in that paradigm. It's not the only paradigm in which to view work. Um, it's possible to view it in other ways as well, right? It's possible to view work as part of as part of citizenship, right? Like I think there is a certain um, strain of Zionist thought which sees work as, a, as an integral element of citizenship and that tends to level the playing field between kinds of work. There's also a notion of work as basically inherently bad as work as a kind of curse. We didn't look at this text, but you have a little bit of this sense already in Breshit, right? That uh, one of the things that Adam is cursed with, right? Adam is cursed at the as soon as he leaves Gan Eden is like, he has to work, right? Like that is not ideal, but he made a mistake. And so now he has to do that. So there is, there's certainly that sense of work as a curse. And if you understand work as being a curse, then in some sense, you could say, well, all work is bad. 
if all work is bad, then in some sense it also levels the playing field. Um, but if you see work as being um, a means to an end, or if you see work as being a commodity, or if you see work as a kind of personal fulfillment, if you see work as, which I think um, is, is the, an opinion that's more popular today, that work is a way of um, living your best life, um, then that also it tends to create hierarchies of work, right? Because if work is living your best life, then if the work you have is not spiritually fulfilling, then it's less good, right? You want work that you know, makes you feel as good in, in your life as possible, right? So that also creates hierarchies of work. Are you, going, are you going to get into like the capitalist versus the, the, the socialist point of view about work or? or yeah, I mean, I think you, you've probably sent some overtones of that. Um, and that's mm -hmm. certainly in the, in the, the sequence around, uh, around the arc. Thank you. Uh, Jason, uh, feel um, free to I, meet yourself. Um, I was, uh, I, I wanted to like circle back to that, like the notion of like, um, like you were talking about how women need to work um, and one of those texts. I was just wondering if there were any texts saying that like men being idle or men not working is problematic as well, or it's exclusively, I know in that text, it's exclusively talking about women. Um, I was also, I was listening to a lecture and this guy was talking about a, um, a um, how like some Germans got unemployed five years before their pension started paying out. And um, when people get unemployed, they tend to engage in antisocial behavior, like excessive drinking, um, not volunteering in your community, what have you. Um, uh, and when their pension kicked in, they started, get, they started stopping that antisocial behavior um, of like, they drank less, they volunteered in their community more, um, like all those things. So like, I, I think I, you were talking about how work brings fulfillment. Have we created a class of people, specifically retirees, who fee don't feel unfulfilled with uh, without work, and is that a new phenomenon? Um, is that something that you think is consistent with the Jewish tradition? Um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of questions there. I don't think I have answers to all of them. I think one of the things you're pointing to is actually similar to something we talked about last class, which is that one thing you see in the last couple hundred years is that um, not working idleness is uh, a more complex category than it used to be, right? Um, there can be differences between rest and recreation and leisure and also all kinds of um, kind of destructive behavior. I think that the, the options you have there um, change quite a bit. There is also the phenomena of people living much longer and so and living healthy, relatively healthy lives past the age when they have retired. And so that also creates this kind of, not entirely new, but I think uh, more urgent question around, um, what is, what is life supposed to look like then? Which I think is a question which a lot of people who are of that age um, ask. So I think those are big pieces of it. Um, in terms of what, in terms of um, like whether it is good for men also to be idle, I think there is certainly that option. I think I, I said this earlier, there is that option of learning Torah um, that is raised as an alternative, perhaps even an ideal um, uh, beyond working. So that is presented as an, as an option. Um, but I'd say like more generally, there are huge debates in both Jewish sources uh, and in Christian sources about whether fundamentally work is good, whether it is good to work or whether it is not, or whether it is not, whether in fact life should be spent doing something else, perhaps praying, perhaps learning. Um, 
I think it's a major question. That question has huge implications even today, right? Like for example, you know, um, 100 years ago, John Maynard Keynes made a prediction that people would begin working less and less and less as productivity increased. You know, um, he would say, you know, he said that, you know, the work week would end up being, I think, 10 or 15 hours for most people. Obviously that hasn't happened. Our work week are still pretty long. Part of the reason for that, at least there, there is an argument that part of the reason for that is because we actually want it to be like that. We actually want, or at least some people in our society think that it is good for people, for, it is good for work to continue to take up the majority of our days. And so we have engineering society in which that continues to be the case. Um, so that's a major question. And the question of whether work is important to do or not um, continues to be, can to be useful. So I think that question, you know, I, I think actually a lot of the questions that, um, that I'm hearing here and also in the last couple of classes are making me think that it might be worth spending um, the last session talking a little bit more about Torah versus other kinds of work because it seems like that's an area of a lot of interest. And um, so maybe we'll spend a little more time in the last class talking about that. All right. All right, that does sound, that does sound like a very uh, promising uh, topic. And if people are interested in, may I make a shameless plug? Uh, there is a class that recently started with uh, Dr. Sarah Zieger on the topic of domestic work. So if you know that source that source particularly interested you and you might want to see how see that more in depth, um, Dr. Zieger's class is on Sundays from eight to nine. And you can catch them on the first class with the recording. And um, to anyone who has questions in chat, um, if, you know, we have a few more minutes, we have time, and you know, if not, uh, please feel comfortable sending it by email. I will make sure that it gets to WSB. Yeah. Feel free to speak up. Thank you, everyone. This is lovely. I really appreciate all the comments and all of your questions. And I'm excited to learn with you again next week. All right. It's always a pleasure to learn with everyone in this class. Um, you can find the recording for this on grisha.org slash live shortly after or on our audio library. And our next class will be on Tuesday at 8 p.m. on the sitter with uh, Rabbi David Silver. And to all, have a good rest of the day or night.